Good morning. Let's pray and dive in. God, we just thank you so much for this moment, Lord, and we also uh, acknowledge, uh, Lord, that we have needs in this room. Lord, it's just so many needs, so many things going on in our lives, so many things that even have happened this week. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that our greatest need this morning is to see Jesus in all of his beauty and his glory so that we might be changed. God, we want to be not just hearers of your word today, but we want to be doers of it. God, we want to sit under the, under the authority of your word in such a way that we walk out of this room changed, looking more and more like Jesus. And so, God, we need your help for that to take place. We, we need you, by your spirit, to take the words of Jesus and to press them deeply into our hearts. God, we cannot do that on our own. So, Lord, give us eyes to see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up where uh, we left off last week in John chapter 14, where Jesus is still just hours away from being crucified. Jesus is still in the upper room with his now 11 disciples. And I think it's also important to remember the emotional temperature uh, in the upper room during this time. If you recall from John chapter 13, we've seen how the disciples have just been humbled in a deep way. The disciples had just been uh, discussing and debating uh, among themselves who the greatest disciple actually is, who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. And it was in that moment that Jesus then uh, washes his disciples' feet. Well, not only that, but Jesus also informs them that there's someone among you that will actually betray me. And then on top of that, Jesus tells them that the boldest disciple among them, Peter himself, will betray him three times. Oh, and icing on the cake, Jesus says, I'm about to leave you guys, and where I go, you cannot follow. And so the dominant emotions in the upper room during this time is probably confusion, fear, anxiety, and despair. Now, looking at verses 1 through 14 last week, I think we can safely assume that the mood has slightly changed. I think it's trending more positively now. And for us, on this side of the cross, as we digested verses 1 through 14 last week, I mean, we, we've had all week to kind of consume those words. We kind of have a better understanding of what Jesus was trying to say in that passage. But the disciples did not have that luxury. They, they were processing verses 1 through 14 on the fly, in the moment, most likely not fully grasping all that Jesus had to say in verses 1 through 14. So I think Jesus knows that. I think he senses that here in the upper room. And what Jesus does at the rest of John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 is he wants to overwhelm his disciples with encouragement and hope. That Jesus wants to build off chapter 14, verse 1, for them to not let their hearts be troubled, to trust in God, trust also in him, and he's going to provide reason after reason why we should do that. At last week, we looked at how Jesus wants us to trust in him because he provides perspective, clarity, and purpose. But here in this passage, Jesus promises something and provides something that is so outrageous and so life-changing that some consider it to be the greatest promise in all of the Bible outside of the promise that our sins will be forgiven. Now, there's there's a hook for you, just to kind of lean in. What is the greatest promise in all of the Bible besides our sins being forgiven? That's what we're going to look at here today. This scene in the upper room feels 
uh, very similar to a scene that takes place in the Beals household just about every single night as we're trying to get our girls ready for bed. If you want to be a fly on the wall uh, for the Beals household, let me kind of unpack what it looks like for you. As we're getting the girls ready for bed, we get their jammies on, they go to the bathroom, they brush their teeth, we get into bed and we read some Bible stories, we pray, we give hugs and kisses, and it should be over at that point in time. I should just be able to walk out of the room and be like, all right, you guys are asleep, now you know, I'm going to go spend time, some time with your mom. And yet that's rarely the case for us. It almost feels like when they know that you know, we're reading the Bible and then we pray, that they like start to panic a little bit. They, they know that daddy's about to leave the room. And one of Ellie's go-to tactics, she's five, but she's picked up on the fact that if she lobs a theological question to daddy, we're going to keep him in the room a lot longer. And so we get done reading these Bible stories, and she just throws this theological grenade at me. And I'm like, I got to answer this. Like, this is too important. Like, I can't miss this. And so, you know, I'm answering this question, and, you know, about 25 minutes later, it seems like, Lindsay, my wife, pokes her head in the room and, and does the whole wrap it up signal, right? And, and, and so if you see that on Sunday morning and you see some woman going like this, you, you know what that means now, like land the plane, like we need to get out of here. That's what Lindsay will kind of do at night, you know, when I'm talking to Ellie about the sovereignty of God or, you know, how did evil come about, all these good questions that I'm diving into. But she knows that if, I, if I'm staying there, if I'm answering these questions, th- then I'm going to be with her. I think what Ellie is doing is kind of what the disciples are doing here in the upper room. The disciples are are kind of panicking in this moment. They've heard Jesus is leaving them, and it feels like they're asking Jesus questions to kind of keep him there with them longer. Verse 5, Thomas asks a question. Judas asks a question in verse 22. Even Philip's statement kind of feels like a stalling tactic in verse 8. And not not to be blasphemous here, but there are times in the Beals household late at night when I'm with the girls trying to get them to fall asleep that I feel like Jesus with his disciples. Like Ellie and Lila are scared of the dark. They don't want to be separated from mommy or daddy. And just like Jesus with the disciples, I have to think of ways to bring them comfort, right? I have to figure out how can I help their hearts not to be troubled late at night, And so I try different things. I've tried, all right, let's start with God for a moment. Think about God, girls. Like God is is here. God's going to protect you. God God is strong. He's powerful. And Ellie's like, wait a second, someone's in the room right now? Like someone that I can't see is is actually, so that that kind of backfired because she's not converted yet. So she probably doesn't understand that. So then I go to the the next thing. I'm like, okay, like I I want your heart not to be troubled. Let me add another reason here. Like, Ellie, I'm, I'm still in the house. Like, I'm going to be downstairs. No one's coming through that front door, right? Like, I'm still here. Well, that doesn't do it because she wants something more than that. And so I'm like, okay, I'll leave the hall light on, right? The hallway light on is, is going to be on so that it's going to trickle in some light so that the darkness is not as dark. Well, she wants something more than that. So in this moment, I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I shepherd the heart? Like, how do I get to her fear? So I just ask her, well, what are you so afraid of? Like, why is there fear in your heart? And right now, Ellie has a love-hate relationship with the Grinch. Don't ask me why, but she, like, loves the Grinch, but she's terrified of the Grinch. So she keeps watching this movie. And she thinks that the Grinch is somewhere in her room. And I'm like, all right, Ellie, let's think about this for a moment. Like, it's just a movie. Like, the Grinch is not real, right? And she's, she's not tracking that. She's not buying that at all. So she's like, well, Daddy, what if the Grinch comes into my room through the window? 
I'm like, okay, let's talk about that logically for a moment. You've seen the Grinch. You know that Whoville is the size of a snowflake, right? It's this big, right? So that means that the Grinch is even smaller. So if the Grinch comes into your room, like, you'll be able to crush him. And I thought that would bring comfort to her, but it just affirmed her greatest fear that the Grinch might actually be real and in her room. And so we had all kinds of problems that night, just trying to to let her heart not be troubled. Look, in all seriousness, what do my girls want that will bring them comfort? What they want is exactly what Jesus promised his disciples here in this passage, and that is a loving, powerful presence. See, just like my daughters who are fearful, the the disciples are fearful here in this moment, and they just want Jesus to be with them. And yet in this passage, Jesus promises something so much better than his physical presence something so life-changing that will help their hearts not be troubled. He promises the Holy Spirit. So this morning, we're going to look at this promise of the Holy Spirit in in three different ways and and see what it has to say for us today. I want to point out the first thing here about this promise. Uh, I want to point out who the recipients of this promise actually are. See, as you walk through this text, this promise that Jesus has is not for everybody. That this gift of the Holy Spirit, his loving, palpable presence, is not something that the whole world experiences. Now, what he's going to say to us is that there is a a type of, uh, of experience through the Spirit that you can experience the depths of his love and the reality of his presence in, in a very deep way. And yet, that's not something for the whole world, even though... We know John 3.16, we know that God has a global love, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves the world. We also know that God's presence is everywhere at once. He's now omnipresent. And so God loves the world. He's everywhere at once. But here in this passage, we learn that Jesus promises a type of intimacy to his love, a type of experience of his presence that's only reserved for a small group of people. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, catch this, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you, the disciples, know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so Jesus is is giving this promise of an intimate, powerful, helping, comforting, loving presence that the world cannot see, nor can they experience. And so who's this promise for? Well, according to verse 15, this promise is for those who actually love and delight in Jesus. Verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so if you, if you love Jesus, if you keep his commandments, what will Jesus do? It says that Jesus will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. All right, now this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus is now talking about a love for him. He's already talked about God's love for the world, God's love for his redeemed people, even a love that we're supposed to have for one another. This is the first time that he is now talking about loving Uh, Jesus loving God. 
And that this promise, according to even verses 21 and 23, this promise is for those who actually love God. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will, what? Will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That that type of love, that type of manifestation of the presence of God is different than God's omnipresence, and it's different than the kind of love that he has for all of the world in John three sixteen. That Jesus is saying that this type of palpable, powerful presence of God, this type of intimate, comforting love is only for those who love him and delight in him. Now, maybe to, to guard us on the other side, theologically, we know elsewhere from John and other passages of Scripture that our love for God doesn't initiate that type of experience, that we don't make the first move in then God giving us that love and giving us that type of presence. We know in 1 John four nineteen that we love God because he first loved us. Or Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his great love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, right? So, so God's love precedes our love for him, but when we in return treasure him and delight in him, something extraordinary happens in our lives. And what Jesus is saying here is that the abiding presence of the living God actually comes and lives within us if we love him. Now, Jesus says that it's not just those who love Jesus, but it's also those who express their love in obedience in verse 15. And in four different verses in this passage, Jesus makes a connection between loving him and obedience, keeping his word. In verse 15 and verse 21, verse 23 and verse 24. And so there, there's some type of connection between obedience and a love for Jesus, but I want to be very clear this morning that your love for Jesus is not your obedience to him. It's not your keeping his commandments. What Jesus is saying here is that your loving Jesus will then result in your obedience. That your love for Jesus will be expressed in keeping his commandments. See, we come across passages like this. We need to protect ourselves from falling into this moralistic trap where we think that our relationship with God is all about us doing things for God. It's all about us performing for God, us kind of um, keeping his commandments, and that's the, the gist of our relationship with him. It's kind of like for those of you who are married, if, if I asked you, um, tell me about your love for your spouse. If you immediately go into, well, yeah, I love my spouse. I take out the trash. I, I, I mow the grass. I, I clean up around the house. Like if, if that was your immediate response, I would say, no, you're missing something there. Th th those are ways that you express your love for your spouse, but that's not your love for your spouse. And, and in the same way, if we, if we think that our relationship with God is all about us performing for him, then our relationship with God will be characterized more by duty than delight, be characterized by obligation and not desire. It'll be performance-based, not grace-based and acceptance-based in what Jesus has accomplished. See, Tim Keller has said that what religion will declare to you is that I obey God, therefore I'm accepted before God. That's what religion says. 
And yet what Jesus says in the gospel is that if your faith is upon Jesus, you are already accepted before him, therefore you obey God. And that order, the obedience and the love and the acceptance, is absolutely essential. Look, that's not to say that our obedience before God is not important. It absolutely is important. But you have to get the right order. It's loving God first, and then our obedience flows from that reality. I love how one theologian put it. He said that loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things for Jesus, but it's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. See, loving Jesus first starts with delighting and treasuring Jesus for all that he is. It starts with just being overcome with his beauty and his infinite worth, his incomparable loving kindness that he has poured out on you. And it's being just completely overwhelmed with the reality of all that God is, like this infinite creator of the universe. He's eternally existent, and yet he knows you by name. He knows all of your sins, all of your transgressions, and yet he has lavished his grace upon you. He's forgiven you, he's loved you, and he's adopted you into his family. And it's saying, what? me, God? You, you love me? It's being utterly overwhelmed at all that God is, all of his beauty, and all that he promises you in King Jesus. It's declaring, Jesus, you alone have the path to life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. I think that's where we start. We start with seeing that Jesus is beautiful, not that Jesus is useful. Jesus is not like a means to our own end, but we first are just enthralled with all that Jesus actually is. And what you'll notice is if you start there, your obedience will actually flow out of that. You will then start to keep uh, what what Jesus says in this gospel. You know, it's at this time, I've, I've read the gospel of John several times, and it's usually at this moment in John's gospel when I start thinking about Judas. Like, I'm so fascinated by Judas. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, here's a guy who spent three years physically with Jesus, Right? I mean, he saw all of the miracles. He saw uh, you know, all, all of the, the teachings of Jesus. He even participated in, in different ministries with Jesus. And yet there was something missing in Judas' relationship with Jesus. Like, I don't, I don't think that Judas started with delighting in Jesus. Like, like if I could kind of diagnose Ju- Judas for a moment, I think Judas got caught up in doing things for Jesus and not treasuring who Jesus actually is. And, and I look at the character of Judas throughout John's gospel, and I think, man, what a challenge to me in my own life. Like, if you're, if you're religious, if you're spiritually active, what a challenge and kind of a warning for, for those of us who are around Jesus and, and around Christianity to fall into this t- the same trap of being predominantly concerned about what can I do for Jesus rather than how can I love and delight in Jesus. You might be thinking, Chris, I think you're, you're overselling this. Like, obedience is important. Godliness is important. And I say, absolutely. But it's where you start. And even if you unpack what Jesus says here in, in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, what kinds of commands has Jesus been giving in the Gospel of John? Right? That's a fair question. Like, if, if our obedience expresses our love, well, if you trace all of these commands in John's Gospel, you're only going to find, and there are dozens of commands, you're only going to find two moral commands in the entirety of John's Gospel. 
You're going to find it in John chapter 13, verse 34, to love one another. It's a behavior commands. And then John 21, verse 16, where Jesus says, you need to feed my sheep. The rest of the commands that Jesus gives have everything to do with receive me, abide in me, believe in me, trust in me, and follow me. Overwhelmingly, that, those are the commands that Jesus provides. In other words, if you love me, what Jesus is saying is that you will throw yourself upon all that I am and you will be enthralled with me. I think Jesus' point in the Gospel of John as he's connecting love and obedience is that if you delight in Jesus, if you, love in, if you love Jesus with all that you are, then your receiving of him will grow more deeply, your abiding in him will be more profound, and your trusting in him will be more consistent. And that by doing so, you will show that you are an actual recipient of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look, I don't know about you, but I just, I'm sensing that we are just going to be challenged in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 with all that Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit, which there is a lot in here, and we're going to get to more specifics in, in chapter 16, but I think that we're going to be challenged with the fact that if you're not experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in your life consistently, then you need to ask the question, are you really in love with Jesus? Like, are, are you really delighting in all that he is? I'm not saying, are you doing things for him? But do you treasure Jesus with all that you are? Or are you maybe falling into the same trap of Judas where you're caught up in being around him but not actually loving him? So the recipients are those that love and treasure Jesus. The second thing I want to point out about this great promise is the conduit of the promise. In other words, how can we actually experience the promise of the Holy Spirit? Remember, we have Jesus' 11 disciples who are in this room on the verge of despair, anxiety-laden, fearful, and Jesus wants to encourage their hearts not to be troubled by promising his loving, abiding, comforting presence forever. Right? He has said that in different ways in this passage. But Jesus also makes clear how we can experience this promise. Look what Jesus says in verse 16. Jesus says that if you love him, he will ask the Father to give you another helper to do what? To be with you forever, all right? So, so who is this helper? Who, who is the vehicle? Who is the means by which we experience this promise? Well, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is talking about the helper, and the spirit of truth, he is talking about this, this third member of the Godhead. I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not a feeling or an emotion. The Holy Spirit is not a, a movement, but the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is the third person of the Godhead, that within the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have three distinct persons, one essence, one God, so that you can actually talk about them separately, but they're all God, so when you have one, you actually experience all three of them. Kind of makes your head want to explode, right? And by the way, this is like Ellie's go-to stalling question when she's trying to keep Daddy in the room. Tell me about the Trinity. What's, what's the, the, is Jesus God? But yeah, the Father is God. And who's this Holy Spirit? Like, and I'm in the room for like two hours. 
the disciples, they don't really take advantage of that. I don't know what they're thinking about the Holy Spirit. I don't know if their minds are being blown here. I don't believe that they're fully grasping the Holy Spirit here. And so I think Jesus unpacks who the Holy Spirit actually is in this passage. He talks about who the conduit of the promise is. And I want to point out two words that I think are really important in understanding the Holy Spirit in this passage. Both words come in verse 16, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Okay, another helper. Two really important words. That word another there in the Greek, you could actually say another in two different ways. You could use the word, the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. Or you can use the Greek word alos, which is another of the same kind. Now the word that's used here is the Greek word alos. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the Spirit is another of the same kind as me. That the Spirit of God is just like the Spirit of Jesus. In fact, it's so much like the Spirit of Jesus that Paul, in Romans 8, 9, calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Now, that's really significant here because the Spirit's presence with the disciples and with believers today has replaced Jesus' physical presence with them. So much so that in verse 17, he tells his disciples that the Spirit of Jesus will live with them and will be in them. All right, so when the Spirit uh, actually comes to dwell within the disciples and then with all believers, it is as if Jesus himself takes up residence within them. This is a mind-blowing reality. And you can almost feel like Jesus is talking very slowly to the disciples, helping them trying to grasp all that he's trying to say. This is why in verse 18, Jesus can say to them, I will come to you, which on the surface, that sounds contradictory. Like, Jesus, I thought you were going to leave them and go to the cross and, and go back up to heaven through the ascension. Well, he can say, I come to you because, yeah, physically he's leaving, but his own spirit is going to come and reside in them. Leon Morris kind of puts this very succinctly. He's a commentary on John, a great theologian, says that this spirit is the divine presence when Jesus' physical presence is taken away from his followers. And so he is another of the same kind. Another important, I think, word to unpack here is that word helper in verse 16. This Greek word is really difficult to translate. There's really no great English equivalent for this word helper. And you can pick up on that by looking at the different translations of the Bible and see kind of each translation take a stab at what they think this word means. Uh, ESV translates, translates it as helper. Others translate it as comforter or advocate or counselor. Like we're like, we don't know what to do with this word. It kind of means all of these things. It's a really difficult word to, to kind of understand, but we do know that this Greek word was often used in a legal setting as someone who was a legal counsel in court. Okay, so this is someone who would argue the case and even um, kind of stand in someone else's stead. This word, though, always contains the idea of encouragement, that this idea is someone who is shouldering the responsibility of another. And so what this tells us about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit for believers, for those who are followers of Jesus, stands for you and stands with you and actually stands in you as he takes up residence in your 
heart. That the conduit of this promise is the helping presence of the living God. And it's an unbelievable reality. In fact, one of the, the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to take this special, intimate, soul-filling, loving presence of God that's not for the whole world, but it's those who love Jesus and he wants to explode it into your heart. That he wants to make the presence of God real to you. And look, when you've experienced that in your life, you know that that is a supernatural experience. Like that is not something that we can conjure up. That, that is not something that if you have bad pizza the night before and, and that feeling going, like that's not what that is. But the Holy Spirit within your life is trying to make God real to you. And so if that's true, like if this is a supernatural experience, there will be specific outcomes in your life. There will be different effects that go on in your life when you experience this promise. And that leads us to our last section here this morning of the different effects that we see in this passage because this promise will come upon believers. Let me point out a couple of these. Ways that you know that the Spirit is at work in your life, number one, is when you experience God's presence tangibly. I think this is one of the clearest, one of the most powerful effects of this promise is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just want to make, make God's presence um, a, a theological possibility in our life. He doesn't just want us to be aware that God's around, but through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, he wants it to, to make the, the presence of God profoundly personal to us. He wants us to experience this powerful, intangible presence of the living God. I like how the Apostle Paul kind of explains this in his prayer for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, talks about the Holy Spirit this way. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't that amazing? Like that, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He he wants, Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to strengthen our inner being, to be present within our lives so that he can bring near the presence and the power of Jesus to be at home within your life. But that is the role of the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about how to um, think of like an illustration to communicate this reality. And um, I, th I thought about if you, if you work for a large company, I want you to think about just this for a moment, that if you're going to work at this large company and you hear that the CEO is going to be present, all right, the CEO doesn't stop by every day, this is kind of a special occurrence, you're probably going to dress a certain way. You're probably going to be your sharpest you want to be on just in case you see the CEO or you have a conversation with, with him or her. And, and let's say you get there and you're kind of ready for the CEO to, to maybe stop by your floor or be in the same area of your office or your cubicle. But imagine this. Imagine if the CEO wasn't just on the same floor as you, wasn't just in the same area of where your desk is, but imagine if the CEO took a seat right next to you where you work. Now, for some of us, that would cause anxiety. Like we've got the boss who's over our shoulder kind of looking at what we do, critiquing us. But imagine if the, whole, if the, if the CEO 
was, was there all day and he was encouraging you. Imagine if he was giving you insights about how to, to, to perform at your best at work. Imagine if the CEO was actually your advocate in front of the board of directors trying to get you a raise. Or imagine if, if that was what the CEO was in your workday. Imagine the impact that would have on how you would work. You would work differently. That, that would change how you viewed your work that day. And in a similar way, that's kind of what the Holy Spirit does in our own lives. That the Holy Spirit doesn't just make the presence of God as if he's in the same building of your life or the same floor of your life, or the same area of where your desk is, but the Holy Spirit takes the presence of God and puts it right next to you, actually right inside of you, in the most intimate way possible. And the Holy Spirit, being at work in your life, is giving you encouragement, is giving you insight about how to live out the Christian life. Through Jesus is your advocate before the Father in heaven. Now, if, if you play that out logically, that should impact the way that you live your life. Like that should, that should change you, the fact that the presence of the living God is with me every single day, no matter what I do. Like that should change your relationship with sin, right? Like I, if you understand that God is with you and has taken up residence in your life, you're probably not going to do certain things. Like the Holy Spirit is probably going to impact the way that you talk to your spouse. The Holy Spirit's probably going to impact the way that you parent and your level of, of patience when your kids are driving you nuts. The Holy Spirit, when you understand this, is, should at least impact what you view on the computer when no one's watching. The Holy Spirit should, should impact how you understand your mission at work, that I'm here to know Jesus and to make him known. See, when we understand that part of the role of the Holy Spirit is that we can experience the presence of God tangibly, it's going to change the way that we live out the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a preacher uh, in the last generation, English preacher, he said this, he says, those who have received the Holy Spirit are aware of a power dealing with them and working in them. He, call, he calls the Holy Spirit, he says, it's a disturbance something, someone interfering in our lives, that we are going along and suddenly we are arrested and pulled up and we find ourselves different. That is the beginning. And that is what always happens when the Holy Spirit begins to work in a human being. There is a disturbance, an interruption to the normal, ordinary tenor of life, that there is something different, an awareness of being dealt with. I cannot put it better. That is the essence of the Holy Spirit dealing with us. Look, bottom line, I think the effect of this promise is that the Holy Spirit removes the distance that we feel with God. That we are to experience this interference, this something supernatural is happening in my life consistently. Just to go back to my early illustration of, of Ellie being afraid of the dark. What she wants is not for me just to be in the same house as her or the same level of the house or the same room. What she wants is for me to snuggle her up in bed and be near to her. And that's what the Holy Spirit does with the presence of God. Secondly, another effect, I think, of this promise is that through the Holy Spirit, we can actually experience peace. 
in the last hours of Jesus, as you get towards the end of this passage, Jesus is trying to help us become a fearless and peaceful people. That Jesus has in mind this peace that is a heavenly peace that's able to penetrate our hearts. How do we know that? We'll look at verse 27. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. See, Jesus, as he talks about the role of the Holy Spirit, has in view your heart to allow you to have this peace that leads you to having this fear-quenching, anxiety-smashing, defeat-conquering of sin in your life. That that's the kind of peace that he has in mind. It's not earthly. That this peace that he's talking about is not something that is rooted in your circumstances. It's not rooted in, in your emotions. It's not based on the circumstances of your life kind of operating very smoothly. Jesus, in verse 27, says that this is my peace, that this peace that he experiences with the Father and with the Holy Spirit is the peace that he shares with believers through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Now, how do we know this? How how can we experience this kind of peace? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus says that he is making a place within us. And that Greek word for place, that only shows up in one other place in all of the New Testament. It shows up in chapter 14, verse 2 of John, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And so catch what Jesus is trying to say here. He's not only saying that I'm going to go prepare a place for you for all of eternity, but what Jesus is saying in verse 23 is that I'm preparing a dwelling place within you right now forever. And that this role of the Holy Spirit is not just to come alongside of you, but to actually come inside of you. That God makes his home within believers. Look, you're never going to experience this heavenly peace unless what you want more than anything in this life is the presence of Jesus. That once you want the presence of Jesus more than being free of anxiety, more than being free of fear and despair, that's when you will experience the heavenly peace that Jesus has to offer by his spirit. So you'll experience this kind of peace. The last thing, and I'll close with this, the last effect that Jesus promises through the Spirit is having this growing assurance, this growing assurance. When you get to verse 26, Jesus is explaining the role of the Holy Spirit, that he's going to come and he's going to teach the disciples all things. He's going to remind them of all that he said. He has this heavenly peace to give, and that when he goes away, the Spirit is going to come, so that in verse 29, Jesus says, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does takes place, takes place, you may believe. Now there's that word believe again. This is part of the purpose of John's gospel kind of coming forth even in this passage, that he wants the disciples to believe what he has said. Now why would they believe this? They'll believe this because when he goes, the Spirit is going to come And the Spirit is going to remind them of all the things that Jesus has said. That Jesus is going to take the words, uh, the the Spirit is going to take the words of Jesus, and he's going to press it deeply into the heart of the believer. 
And he's going to remind him, yes, this is what Jesus has said. Yes, this is who you are in Jesus. And by doing so, the spirit of Christ brings assurance that you are a child of God. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. A part of the role of the spirit is to affirm that, yes, you belong to God's family. And so what do you and I need most when we go through the storms of life? What do we need most when we have a storm of fear, anxiety, and despair? Well, what we need most is the palpable, loving presence of God, where God says, I will be with you forever. And that's exactly what Jesus provides here. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful passage. God, we thank you. Lord, for the amazing gift and promise of the Spirit, Lord, I pray for those of us who are here today who might feel a distance with you, God, who might feel that you are far away in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would renew their awareness of the Spirit of God in them if they're a believer. God, I pray for those who are here who are not believers, who are not Christians, who have not placed their faith upon Jesus. Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would convict them and show them the beauty of Jesus so that they might put their faith in you. So God, we want to be a people who, whose hearts are not troubled because we trust in you. And Lord, we trust in you through the work of the spirit. So Lord, would you allow his work to be greater in our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.